I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Helen Mary Jones, who has recently returned to the National Assembly as the Plaid Cymru Assembly Member for Mid and West Wales um, after an absence from the Senate of about seven and a half years. But before we get on to that, uh, Helen, let's go right the way back to the beginning because you're actually, I think, from Colchester. How does an Essex girl end up becoming one of the most prominent Welsh nationalists? Well, I suppose that is a good question. And when I first got involved in Plaid, my parents asked themselves that question. And I, I pointed out to my father that he'd brought me up with stories of his father's life and the, the mining strike in 1926, where my grandfather was a union leader and also very passionate about the Welsh language, wouldn't have English spoken in the house. And then my mum, who you know had Irish and Scottish roots and had sung songs of the 15 and the 45 over my cradle, and I could only say to them, where do you think I got my politics from, you two? So we grew, we grew up in, in, in Essex. My dad was uh, one of those generations of people who left Wales to teach. And when he was coming up to retirement, it was actually my mum who felt that he that it would be for various reasons we we wanted a, they wanted a fresh start and it was my mum's suggestion that we should go back to Wales um, and we ended up living in um, rural Montgomeryshire, which couldn't be more different from Essex and I think that was in some ways that was the beginnings of my politics because that was the first time we were living in a community we'd been in very much kind of commuter belt before where you didn't really know your neighbours and that sort of thing and people made us really welcome I began to learn the language and ended up in Aberystwyth around the time of the first devolution referendum in 1979. In 1979, yeah. How long had you been in Montgomery at that stage? We'd, we moved when I was 14, so we'd been there for four years. But we'd always felt, because of my mum's roots and my dad's roots, we'd never, none of my, I'm the seventh of eight children, and none of us would describe ourselves as English, even though many of my older brothers and sisters have never actually lived anywhere else. And uh, so I had that sort of sense of a, of a different identity anyway. And then, you know, coming to coming to university, I, I was very committed to wanting to stay in Wales for my university education. What were you studying? Um, history. And again, that I suppose you learn about the past and how we got here and, and that kind of reinforced. And began to get involved in political things more so just at the edges of going to demonstrations around the language and beginning to get involved in women's issues. Didn't really see party politics as something that I was very likely to get involved in campaigned for the devolution referendum and then of course we lost so badly and it was at that point where with the typical arrogance of a 19 year old I thought oh well I must better get on and get involved with this and try and make some changes and I think I was probably one of the very few people who joined Plaid Cymru in 1979 there were an awful lot of people who left and you know stayed involved in various ways ever since when I moved to teach in the South Wales Valleys got involved with applied locally there you know never like not something you'd do if you were wanting to build a political career in the in the 80s that's for sure uh, and had some interesting experiences contesting the uh, Islam constituency against Neil Kinnock was quite a quite quite an experience which election was that oh god 90 something uh, 92 yes would have been 92 and I got all sorts of media exposure because, of course, he was the leader of the opposition. So, that, so I got interviewed by The Guardian and my, one of my big brothers who lives in the States phoned me up and said, what are you doing in our newspapers? Because they profiled, did a profile of all the candidates standing against him in, in the New York Times of all places. 
What was your perception of uh, Neil Kinnock? Um, you obviously stood against him at that time. He was expected, wasn't he, at that time? He was expected. To the Prime he was expected to win. Um, there was. I mean, I didn't get to know him well as an individual, but there was a sense of entitlement about his camp. And more or less, anybody having the audacity to contest the election against him was was not not warmly welcomed into into those circles. Let's put it that way. But they certainly didn't expect to lose. And of course, uh, he was uh, well known for his antipathy to devolution. So I can't imagine that that um, uh, endeared him to you. I, he did. The, I, I don't think Neil and I would ever have been the best of friends. Let's put it. Let, let's put it that way. I think we had some quite kind of different views. But obviously, with the, him losing that election, that was more years of Thatcherism, and that wasn't anything that anybody would have wanted. Of course, you know, you go into the Blair years and you ask yourself how different it was. Uh, but that that was that was an enjoyable election from the point of view of getting the chance to sort of test my mettle with some sort of like being interviewed by really serious journalists that sort of thing. It wasn't an enjoyable election in terms of uh, camaraderie between the candidates. Let's put it that way. So were you still teaching at that point? I had just left teaching, and I was so I taught for five years, and I taught young people who'd been excluded from mainstream education, and they were everything from a, a little girl who was so unwell that she basically sat on my lap and cried for a year and a half so I'd sort of get pick her up off the school bus and when I say little girl I'm talking a 13 year old and she she was very disturbed to a a lad who was with us for knocking his head teacher out cold of a fist fight they were a very mixed bunch but actually they were when you got past the bravado and the nonsense they were actually lovely kids and I just left that and I was working for a third world development charity as their um, representative in Wales working for Action Aid, and that was a, a fascinating time. And I also I got to go out to Uganda for six weeks to see some of the what the, we were. It was the sort of third world organisation that tries to bring communities together so you know where your resources are going. And we'd been raising money in Wales for water projects in Uganda. And it was amazing to see what those people with so little were doing. And, you know, that was a... In the eighties, a, t- a tough time for politics in in Wales. But s- seeing those people who and it was shortly after the civil wars, you know, in some places there were still piles of skulls by the boats, uh, and seeing that what those people were doing, coming back with almost nothing, and you know, we raising a few hundred quid in a village in Wales for some cement and some spades, and the difference that that so that the clean water made to those communities sort of brought me back thinking, oh, come on, you know, this is yeah, this, things are not great here, but look what it's like there, and look at what how people are pulling together, working together as a community, and that was sort of quite inspiring, and I think it, it sort of... Well, I actually asked I asked the, some of my female colleagues out there, well, could, if, I, if I stayed, if I stayed in Uganda, what could I do? Because things felt so bleak. You know, we'd lost devolution, we'd lost the miners' strike. Conservatism seemed to be embedding itself in, in British political culture in a way that looked impossible to shift. And they were very kind, and they said, well, you know, you could, you could help us with... Te- because I was a qualified teacher, so that you, you could train... And English is the the common language there so you could train primary school teachers you could work in women's organizations but they said but the best thing that you can do for us is to go home and to keep raising awareness of the work that we're doing and of what we need and that made me think yeah actually Jane stop feeling sorry for yourself sort of go back home and 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 keep doing what you can to make a difference absolutely so I mean from what you've said clearly uh the background that you have uh gave you uh very strong sense of internationalism, sense of solidarity, in a way that um, people who just become 
politicians, after being researchers, may have the theory, but they don't necessarily have the practice. So do you think that that's enriched your ability to be a politician? I think it has. I think the, the values that my parents brought me up with, which were about fairness and about justice. You know, I had a had an older brother who was very profoundly dyslexic, didn't learn to read and write until after he left school and you know, saw the impact of that on his life. Um, and just, well, my mother used to tell me a story about me, which I'll tell you, but it's a bit hideous, but it's a story against myself in a way. Um, you know, anybody who's brought up children, you eventually get to the point where the child says something to you like, it's not fair, and you say, you will have to learn that life is not fair. And so my mum used to tell the story of, of uh, something had happened to my younger sister, and I said, that's not fair. And my mum my said something like, well, you will have to understand that life is not fair. And apparently I looked at her and said, well, it will be when I grow up. <laughs> what a little brat. But I think that actually that sense of, of that, that came from them, you know, that things and, and that a sense that if you saw something that felt wrong, that you had a responsibility to try and do something about it. And actually a sense that if you have privileges if you have opportunities and you know we we were I'm seventh of eight children on a teacher's salary we were never well off but the money that we had was spent on books and shoes you know and we were brought up with a very clear understanding that we were lucky and that there were lots of other people who weren't as lucky as us and that it was our responsibility if you saw something that was wrong to try to put it right and if you didn't you were part of that problem you were collaborating with it and I suppose that's been that's kind of informed what I've tried to do professionally what I've tried to do in terms of bringing up my own family and what I've tried to bring into into frontline politics I know people who have um, perhaps gone through this uh, internationalist route if you like who take a rather different view uh, to you Helen and they would say we're internationalists we hate any form of nationalism what we want is socialism on an international basis so how do you go from having this great international perspective to being a Welsh nationalist? Well, I think it, it again. It's the question my parents asked me. You, know, you could say that on one, I've got the socialism from my father and the sense of, of my of, of injustices to my own countries from my mum. But I, I think it, it for me, it's about fairness and it's about. I don't think Wales is better than any other country, but I think we're as good. For me as well, and this was particularly true, um, you know, when I in my sort of formative years, it, 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 the history spoke to me, and the truth is that since working men first began to get the vote in Wales, we have never elected a majority of Conservative MPs. And yet, at that time, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, for about three quarters of that time, we'd had Conservative governments that somebody else had chosen. And so, for me, my commitment to self-government, to nationalism for Wales, was about what we can do with it, about the kind of country that I believe that we can and eventually will be, and the power that, that that gives us as, you know, you know, people talk about Wales being poor and relatively perhaps in Europe we are, but relative to the rest of the world we are not, that as a small, strong, self-governing, independent nation that we could play the kind of positive role on the international stage that small countries like, for example, Ireland, who spend most of their defence budget on peacekeeping could do. So for me, while I understand that some people see a dichotomy, and I think if I'd been brought up in the English middle class, with all the connotations around imperialism and all of that sort of stuff, that's where my politics might have ended up. Um, 
But because I can see in Wales's history and therefore potentially in our future the potential to be a, a nation that sets a good example. And, and to an extent, you know, since devolution, we have around some things in things like, you know, establishing the role of the Children's Commissioner in enshrining the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child in, into our law. So I don't see that dichotomy for me, though I can understand where, where other people do. And of course, there are some forms of nationalism that are loathsome, just as there are some forms of socialism, you know, Uncle Joe Stalin, for example, that are particularly unpleasant. Um, and I think when people in the British left think about nationalism, they think about the far right. I mean, it, it, it breaks my heart to see how English culture is hijacked and how, you know, the, the, the English flag has become a symbol of the right. And I think that's terrible because I think England has got a, a brilliant radical political tradition as well that gets lost in all that stuff. But I think if I was an English socialist, I wouldn't want to be associated with that sort of nationalism. I mean, our, our nationalism here in Wales is, a, is one that includes everybody. It, you know, it, it's, it's whether you've just arrived as a refugee from a war-torn country or whether you've been farming the same acres of Snowdonia for the last thousand years. You know, we are all as Welsh as we choose to be, and we can be part of building that nation that can that can set a good example and in the end can reach out and, and, and support other nations that haven't had the chances we have. Now, of course, um, there may be some irony in the fact that it was in 1997 uh, the landslide that the Labour Party had at that time which led to the possibility of devolution in Wales once again. When that happened, or when the um, possibility became a possibility, what were your feelings? Did you think that it was going to be possible to turn around that 4-1 to one against devolution vote which had happened in '79? It felt... An enormous challenge. I was never one of the people who thought that it was in the bag. I knew that we would have difficulties because there were still substantial parts of the Labour Party in Wales that were opposed and some very serious you know, figures in the Labour Party who were not only not going to campaign, they weren't going to campaign yes, but they were going to campaign no. I also thought that we were on shakier ground because you know the commitment to devolution had come when the Labour Party was led by John Smith Everybody knows that it was never really something that Tony Blair was personally committed to. I wouldn't want to say that he was hostile to it, but he certainly wasn't personally committed to it. So I thought that we had a, a big battle to fight. Um, there were lots of internal discussions with Implied because those of us who were old enough to remember how we threw ourselves heart and soul into Labour's last devolution proposal in '79, we did all the work while they were campaigning against and we still lost... Uh, you know, there were some discussions about, well, do we do we get involved? Do we do we do this? And in the end, of course, we came to the conclusion that we should campaign, but we should campaign under the Yes for Wales banner. Uh, you know, that this shouldn't be plied branded. Um, I think the work, particularly that we did, uh, and a lot of that was organised at the time by Yeoman Jones with the phone canvassing, was absolutely crucial in terms of identifying where the supporters were and getting them out. I always thought it was going to be touch and go, and I. I think one of the most vivid and most unpleasant memories of my political career is sitting in the BBC studios on the night, being one of the people who was commenting, and seeing the no votes come in from the counties across Wales and just thinking, oh my God. And I had come to the conclusion by the end of that night that if we lost again I wasn't going to stay because my daughter at that stage was a baby and I couldn't bring her up in a country that believed so little in itself. And we have Irish family, and I would have gone. 
uh, at least that was my emotional feeling at the time. Whether I and you know I had transferable skills, I could you know, go elsewhere. I just couldn't bear the thought. Uh, I mean, I couldn't understand in 1979 why a country was so self-hating. I mean, you can sort of, you can intellectually understand it, but here you just go, what? You know, you're giving, being given a chance to have a small say over your own life. Why wouldn't you take it? And then, of course, something happened in Hugh Edwards's earpiece, and we could see the pictures coming in from the Carmarthen Count. And of course, I could see people I knew who were obviously very happy, and I was thinking, yeah, but they're happy. They know they've won Carmarthen, but. And, and there was that sort of time. And I have to say, it was worth sitting through all of that with Anne Cloyd and Lembit Opic to see the look on Nigel Evans's face when finally, finally, Carmarthenshire delivered it for us. Um, and I had a strong sense, though, after that, that devolution was still fragile. And then, of course, um, you were actually a member, weren't you, nominated by Pride for this National Assembly Advisory yes. Group, which was involved in setting up the Assembly and, and deciding how it was going to function and all those sorts of issues. What, I mean, did you feel at that time that you were going to stand as a candidate? I thought I would stand whether I would have ended, whether I, at that stage wasn't clear whether I was going to end up in a winnable seat. Um, and the most... I mean, my, my, once we sort of progressed in sort of thinking it through, my kind of intention had been to probably stand first past the post in Montgomeryshire, which we wouldn't win, but to campaign hard to get to the top of the regional list in Mid and West Wales. But that was always going to be very tightly contested. I mean, at the time of the National Assembly Advisory Group, I was just so pleased to be part of that. It, it, it felt like nation-building. It felt like being given a job. Okay, we've won this election, now what does it look like? Now how does it work? And being able to work with others to, to build into the institution's DNA from the beginning, things like a commitment to equality of opportunity, you know, things like you know, banning discriminatory language specifically in the standing orders. It felt like a step towards building that kind of Wales that I had imagined we could decide to be if, if we had more control over our own lives. I've always thought it was funny that the, the first ever um, public body in Wales that was gender balanced actually spells nag, if you think. And John, Ron Davis was aware of that and he thought it was funny as well. Uh, and there are sort of nice little memories of that time. So there was a reception at the end of the process and at that stage I was a mother of a very tiny child and I'd said, well, I can only come if I can bring my daughter. And the civil servant said, oh, no, we can't have children in here. And Ron Davis said, what do you mean we can't have children in here? So there she was, this, this sort of little, uh, what would she have been, about one and a half, potter, tot, tottering around the reception with a glass of orange juice in her hand. And I thought, yeah, this is, you know, there's that institution that says there's no room for children. And therefore, by implication, there's no room for parents of small children, particularly women. And I was going, no, actually, we don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to do politics the way the British state does it. So you ended up standing in for Nettley. Did you think that you had a serious chance of winning there? Because obviously it's a seat which had been Labour for many years, had uh, huge majorities for uh, the Westminster MP. And obviously you were starting a new institution, but I don't think anyone at the outset really thought there was a chance of winning there. At the beginning of the campaign, we didn't. And as I said, my sort of thinking had been that I would stand in Montgomeryshire and go for the Mid and West Wales list. Um, I was doing the rounds of first-past-the-post constituencies with a view to coming second. 
because the same people would then come together to choose the regional candidates. So I you know, went to, to Mayum Doivor, never expecting. And, and it was similar, really, with Llanelli. I, I, I went to the nomination process hoping that they'd be sufficiently impressed with me to support me on the Mid and West Wales list. I was very surprised to be offered the nomination because there were some really strong local candidates. In fact, when the poor agent phoned me up and offered me the, uh, the nomination... I said something rather stupid, like, are you sure? And you could hear the poor man rolling his eyes, and he said, Helen Mary, you were the only woman on the shortlist. I'm not likely to have got confused. And so at the beginning of that campaign, I don't think we thought we could win it. I thought we, th- we thought we could drive up the vote substantially and that that would help the chances of the party delivering more people in on the regional list. But something happened during the course of, of, of that election, and some of the, what happened happened in me, and I... I came to really love the place, campaigning in it, you know, communities with lots of challenges, with lots of, of problems, but also really active, you know, lots of people looking at problems in their own community and coming together to put it right, whether it's sort of small groups working on health issues or people working to preserve the Welsh language. And I just thought, you know, these, these people deserve better representation than they've had. And I think that I responded to those communities in that way and they responded to us and to what was a we must you know it was a very very good national campaign for Plaid we had all the problems with the labor leadership and you know people labor voters on doorsteps internationally were angry at the whole Alan Michael thing they they felt that their their leader had not been allowed to be their leader and that helped us I think but it was still pretty astonishing when we won, even on the morning. Because remember, we, we counted in the morning, so I was driving over to the count, and somebody phoned me to say that we'd won Isloin, which was my old home. And I actually said, don't be silly, you're winding me up. And he said, no, no, and if we'd won Isloin, we might have won Llanelli. And I'm going, oh, no. Yeah, we knew by then that we were, it was going to be close, and we thought, instead of a massive overall Labour majority, that, you know, that they, we might have a few thousand in it. We didn't think we were going to win. So when we did, it was it was pretty astonishing. And it was particularly, for me, moving for the plied activists internationally who'd worked their socks off over years and years and years in a pretty hopeless seat, um, but gently driving up the vote. I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, we built that success on, a, you know, the, the, the plied vote in Westminster elections had gradually been going up over the years. And those people who'd worked so hard. And, and so it was... Yeah, it was quite a it was quite a surprise. Llanelli, of course, is the sort of seat that Plaid has to win if it's got to have, and have any chance of getting into uh, into government. And uh, of course, now we're in the midst of a Plaid Cymru leadership contest where people are trying to set out in their different ways how Plaid Cymru takes itself forward to a point where it can win an election in 2021, or at least be in a position to form. A government. You fought uh, four times, you won twice, you lost twice. Um, what do you think it will take for Plaid Cymru to be able to make an advance so that a seat like Llanelli can, as it were, almost be regarded as a safe seat and that you're having to push elsewhere? There's a lot of work to be done. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. And it's a combination of things. I mean, if I reflect back to 99, we had inspired leadership. We had a really effective communications team. We had a clear message. We were positive and optimistic. We need to do all of that again. 
I think it's true to say that it is always more difficult for Plaid in those seats, which we have to win. And you know, we have to win internationally, and we have to win seats across the valleys, just as the SNP has won seats in the central belt. That's what we've got to do. It's always harder to do that when you've got a, a loathed Conservative government in London, because it becomes easy for Labour Labour people to say you have to vote Labour to keep the Tories out, and it's easy for them to then run that kind of really negative campaign. Uh, but I think what we have to do is to counteract that with confidence. We have to counteract that with a positive message. We have to reach out to voters who haven't considered us before at the same time as consolidating our traditional support base. And, and we can do that. We've done it before and we can do it again. And, you know, one of the messages that I will be hoping to get across to the party across Mid and West Wales in the coming year and nationally is there is nothing inevitable about Plaid being second. I mean, if we look at what the SNP has achieved, we have to remember that in 1999 and 2003, Plaid did better in Wales than the SNP did in Scotland. We make excuses for ourselves sometimes, Martin. We say, oh, we haven't got much of a media in Wales and we... They had that media in Scotland, and the media was inimical to them. They were the, they, they were the enemy. Uh, we haven't got the resources. They didn't necessarily have the resources. We haven't got the people on the ground. Well, you go out and find the people on the ground. You know, We must not accept this narrative that we need to be a good second. I'm hearing that from our candidates in the leadership campaign, and I'm really liking that. And I'm looking forward to, to playing a, a role with whoever the party chooses as their leader. To Because we're, we're not going to beat Labour at their own game. We're not going to beat them at the, oh, we're too small, we're too poor, we can't look after... If we put ourselves on that territory, if we play the pity card, you know, you don't encourage people to be strong and independent by encouraging them to feel sorry for themselves. Yeah, the realities are that, you know, we've been in a compulsory currency union with England since since certainly the 1500s and we're poorer than Slovakia. So, you know, it hasn't been a roaring success. But we're not going to win by telling people that. We are going to win by telling people what we can be, the nation we can be, the country we can be. And for me, that's around prosperity. It's around standing on our own two feet economically. And of course, that's going to be harder if this whole insanity of Brexit goes ahead. But it doesn't mean to say it isn't possible. And it's also about what do we do with those resources then? The kind of the, the, the social justice, the fairness. You know, we look at a country like Norway that had no natural resources when it started out on its journey towards independence. When it found some natural resources, it's managed them responsibly. And despite, you know, you look across Scandinavia and despite some signs of the rise of the far right, the basic social democratic principles around things that like healthcare and childcare are things that even the far right there doesn't argue with. And if we can, if, if Plaid can believe ourselves in the country that Wales can be, then we can convince other people. And that's when we tap into that, I wouldn't call it a natural nationalism, but there's the, there's the Max Boyce song about 10,000 instant Christians, and what you've got is 10,000 instant Welsh people whenever there's a, you know, a, a sporting event. And, and those people, those, to use the jargon, non-Welsh-speaking Welsh identifiers, are passionate about their country. But we haven't yet convinced them that they can turn that passion into self-government, and that's what we've got to do. One of the problems from a demographic point of view, of course, is that um, unlike in Scotland, where the SNP has managed to make itself, uh, or did manage to make itself, the uh, only uh, realistic alternative to the Labour Party, in Wales we've still got a, a split opposition to Labour, haven't we, because the Conservatives are quite strong in uh, many parts of Wales, and, um, I mean, currently, of course, they are the official opposition in the National Assembly. 
And that, of course, poses a problem to Plaid Cymru, doesn't it? Because there are those people who uh, would argue that there should be some kind of cooperation from a pragmatic point of view with the Conservatives in order to get into government. Now, I know that when um, you were an Assembly member before, back in 2007, when there was talk about um, Plaid going into a so-called rainbow coalition with the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, you were one of the Plaid AMs who was very much opposed to that. Now, I would presume that you would be wholly against any kind of uh, coalition with the Conservatives, but how far would you want the party to go in terms of any kind of cooperation with them in future government? Well, my view is actually stronger now than it was then, um, because we now have had 10 years of appalling Conservative-led government in London that has driven the poorest people in our communities in Wales into even more desperation. And I think, therefore that both from a moral perspective and also from a pragmatic perspective, you know, those those Welsh-identifying traditional Labour voters would even less forgive us now for any kind of formal arrangement. I guess for me, I mean, it, it, it's difficult to speculate because you don't know what the maths would be. If we were in a situation where Conservative AMs could be persuaded to vote for Applied Cymru budget, fine. You know, they're, they're voting for Applied Cymru budget and Applied Cymru programme. Cabinet ministers' formal cooperation, not on as far as I'm concerned, um, for the reasons that I've stated, both because I just think it would be wrong. I also struggled in 2007 to see how you could put together a credible programme of government when people's views are so different. I know it does happen in Europe, but I struggle to see how we could do that here. But also because I simply don't think that the key electorate that we need to speak to would forgive us. Um, and, and I think they'd be right not to. So, you know, as I say, if we can convince Conservatives in this institution to vote for Plycomery policies, then I'll be very pleased and uh, very grateful for their votes. But sit round a cabinet table with them, never in Europe. There remains, of course, um, doubt in many people's minds in Wales about the effectiveness of how the Assembly has functioned since uh, 1999, not in terms of the debates that take place, but in terms of the, the delivery of public services, the delivery of health, the delivery of education, and the um, economic uh, prospects of Wales, and the, the failure for it to become that economic powerhouse which many people were looking forward to at the time of devolution. Um, do you think that that relative failure and perhaps disappointment with outcomes um, is something that Plaid could exploit in an election because obviously you would say that that's down to the fact that Labour has been in power for all this time although of course there was four years when Plaid was in government as well. I think if we go right back to the beginning of devolution Plaid as an opposition was a bit careful and perhaps a bit too careful um, because you remember me saying earlier, you know, there was a sense that the institution itself was still quite fragile in people's perceptions, and therefore it was kind of difficult if you were knocking, if you were knocking the government as the opposition, how could you be clear you weren't knocking the institution? And I think maybe we slightly missed a trick there. I think when we were in government, we did some really good, our ministers did some really good things. We did a bit of a rubbish job about taking credit for those. So I think we have to look back and learn from our mistakes. Um, actually, when you look at detailed opinion research, some of the stuff that Wales Governance Centre has, has done, 
people are able to make a difference between where they think decisions ought to be made and the quality of the decisions that have been made. So, for example, if you ask people where they think decisions about health should be made, they will say they want them made in Wales. If you then ask them, do you think these recent decisions about health have been good, they'll say no, not necessarily. So I think we're now in a position where we can be really clear about the difference between the democratic institution and the people who've been being elected to run it. And I think we need to make that difference. And I need, think we need to, you know, I said in my very brief statement, my coming back statement yesterday, that you know, one of my jobs is going to be to hold this government to account, particularly for my constituents, but for the people of Wales. I think we have to do that really rigorously. I'd argue that the current Plaid group has been doing that, we've, we, in, particularly since the last election. But as we're doing that, we have to be telling people what the positive alternative is. So for me, every time I get up on my feet to remonstrate with a, a Welsh minister about something that they're not getting right for the people of Mid and West Wales, I have to have a positive alternative to offer the people of Mid and West Wales. Because otherwise, then you are potentially getting into the trap of, as you're talking the government, challenging the government, talking the government down, you could be seen to be talking the institution down. There is nothing inevitable about the democratic structures or the way this place works, except perhaps for the fact that there aren't enough of us to do the scrutiny properly, that leads to bad governance. What has led to bad governance is people who've been in power for so long that they think they own it, which kind of takes me back to Neil Kinnock in the 1990s. Another problem for Plaid Cymru, of course, is the scepticism that many people have about the project of independence. They don't think that Wales could stand on its own feet and that uh, there would be a huge budget deficit from day one with no money to pay, pensions, etc. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that that's true. And when you have had 800 years of being told that you're too poor and you're too weak, it's not surprising that you behave it or believe it. I think you know, Marx's term for that would be internalised oppression. No wonder we think that. And of course, as you just pointed out in your earlier question, since devolution, we haven't actually had governments that have taken hold of the weapons, however feeble those weapons are, and used them to build our economy and therefore to be able to resource our social justice. So we as a party have to acknowledge that that's there. But it's our responsibility to build that self-confidence. And that was almost as true in Scotland. You know, if you, if, you, if you look back to the early days of devolution, public opinion in Scotland was not keen on the idea of independence at all. It's much closer now, I believe, because it's had a series of very effective governments who believe in independence. So I think for us, it's about being really clear that we believe Wales would be better off as an independent country but these are the stages that we get to get there. And the first thing that we have to have is a Plaid Cymru government that then does start to use some of the tools we've got, however ineffective they are, to build that economy and to build that confidence. But in the end, you see, Martin, if we don't believe it, if, you know, if, if I didn't believe in independence, I might as well go and join my friends in the Labour Party, you know, as I have been asked to do on a number of occasions over the years, because they believe in social justice too, allegedly. You know, how effectively they deliver on it is another thing. But if we don't, if Plaid doesn't believe, if you know, and if our leaders and if our, if we are not in our heart of hearts convinced that a free Wales would be a more prosperous place and a fairer place, then however are we going to convince other people? And we've got to have that confidence ourselves. We've got to exude that confidence, and that's what the SNP have done so well. 
That is what will get us into government, and then in government we can, we can use the tools that are there at the same time as saying, and if we had more control over this, we could do that even better. As I sit here in this room with the sun coming through the windows, that all sounds really simple, and of course it isn't. There's a tremendous amount of work to be done, and some of the excuses we give ourselves, like the, the lack of a really good effective media, some of those things are real. So for me, a lot of those messages have got to be uh, conversations that we have face-to-face with people. But it has to be positive. We are never going to convince the people of this little country of why we should stand on our own two feet if we don't exude that confidence about what that independence can deliver. And just finally, you've always been known as a big champion of equality and you fought for women's rights and uh, you referred to um, the rights of girls as well. Now, I noticed that at the time when your uh, return became known, uh, as a result of uh, very unfortunate circumstances that we don't have to go into. There was some activity on social media in which you were being accused of being transphobic. Yeah. I mean, that uh, surprised me somewhat, but the the, the whole debate about um, transgender issues seems to have got extremely toxic and there's some very nasty stuff going on. Um, where do you stand on that issue, Helen? Well, first of all, you know, I just want to say that it's how disappointing the tone of the debate has been. I mean, I have spoken up for, campaigned, and will continue to campaign for the rights of, of, of transgender people. Uh, one of the sets of questions that I want to ask Welsh ministers, for example, is what has happened to their commitment to having a gender identity clinic in Wales? It is shocking that a person who uh, feels that they want to transition has to go through a whole set of psychological testing here in Wales... And then they have to go through the whole thing again at the Tavistock Clinic in England. I think it's particularly invidious that that has to be done. So you can, of course, have your psychological counselling in Welsh if you're a Welsh speaker in Wales, but then you have to go through all of that again in, a, in your second language. Now, all of that's wrong, and we can put that right. But there are particular proposals around proposed changes to the law, around allowing people to change their legal identity purely by self-identification that I'm a bit worried about. That's all. But one is not currently allowed to raise any concerns at all without being called hateful. Well, I'm sorry, I can't allow that to stand. Um, you know, the current legislation allows for uh, certain circumstances where only natal women, you know, female-bodied women, are, are allowed, and those currently would include things like women's refuges, under most circumstances women's prisons rape crisis centres. There are also some issues around women's sport where you know we segregate some sports, the contact sports, because of the physical risk to smaller and weaker people. The current law allows for that. There are some question marks around if you move to simple self-identification, how that might be used. You know, we know that there are men out there who will use all kinds of methods to get access to vulnerable women and girls. Um, I can't believe for a moment, well, we know where it has happened uh, in Canada, for example, that there have been some men who've misused the self-identification process and have gone in, for example, into women's prisons and gone on to commit assaults. I'm convinced that if we have a sensible conversation, but I should also say that I think the current process for a person being allowed to get their legal gender reassigned is onerous. It's too complicated. It's not fair. 
if we can just have a sensible conversation, I think we can find a way of protecting the rights of natal women and girls and improving things for trans people. You can't do that by shouting at each other. And, you know, I've chaired meetings where we've been chucked out of venues because we've been accused of being hate groups. You know, we are in the process of considering legal action around that. I've had to stand in front of a television camera with a poor, embarrassed journalist asking me, are you a bigot, when everybody in Wales knows that I may be a great many things, but a bigot I'm not. Uh, I've had the personal attacks on social media, though I have to say I haven't had it half as bad as some women have, uh, partly because I think that most sensible people know that it's very difficult to accuse choose Helen Mary Jones of being bigoted. I can be wrong, you know, and I know I'm open to being convinced in a debate that I'm wrong, but bigoted I'm not. It would have been funny if it hadn't been sad that on the one, one of the days around me coming back to take my oath in, in August, there was a very small group of trans allies on the steps of the Assembly protesting against my readmittance. There were five of them. They were all members of the Labour Party. And what was really quite, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it as funny, but they missed me on the way in because they turned up too late. And on the way out... I walked past them and they were so busy taking photographs of each other that they didn't even see me. So I'm not particularly nervous of them. But I am worried about the kind of poisonousness of the debate because, you know, there are in this institution some people who are truly hateful. I mean, I was shocked, I think, by Gareth Bennett's intervention around the burqa and the right of women to dress how they want to dress... Of course, I'd seen it in the media and I'd read reports by you and others. But watching it on television is not quite the same as being in that room. And when we have real hatefulness to resist and elements of the rise of the far right, it isn't really sensible for those of us who believe in progress and social justice to be taking lumps out of each other. But I'm not going to change my view on this. Um, Well, I might actually. You know, if somebody can sit down and have a conversation with me, uh, I might change my view because I can be wrong, but hateful I'm not. And if we can just sensibly talk this through, we can find ways to improve rights of trans people and to protect women and girls. But if I'm asked to pick a side, I'll pick a side. But I would much rather have a dialogue. Helen Mary Jones, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.